if you think about somebody who's really healthy, um, they kind of glow, right? And the reason why people glow when they're healthy is because they have robust energy production in their body and they have adequate, even beyond adequate, they have, they have enough energy and more to handle anything that happens in their life. But in scientific terms, in Western terms, this is actually called skin autofluorescence. And skin autofluorescence is essentially your body's ability to fluoresce, like your, your body creates light. And essentially, when we create these electrochemical gradients and we consume food and we make charge, we're literally charging our batteries of our body. And when you, to me, when I look at somebody, I can tell if somebody's healthy by literally just the way they look. Are they making and storing enough charge? Is that showing in their skin? If you look at somebody who's unhealthy, their skin is sallow. They don't produce that amount of light. And they often, I mean, most people in Western culture, the biggest complaint you see in medicine is I'm tired. I don't have enough energy. Um, and in Eastern medicine, this has always been sort of their, their fundamental purpose of Chinese medicine is how do you balance an individual's energy? How do you balance the yin and the yang? But we haven't really until very recently integrated this concept. Um, and it wasn't until really Wallace and, and this discovery of the and unbelievable importance of mitochondria in metabolic health that I think we've been starting to piece together this connection. And from what I've gathered, Wallace is actually doing research in China, specifically dedicated to figuring out how to how to bridge these these two things, um, these two worlds. And um, I think it's just fascinating, though, that we've been we've been so obsessed with an, anatomy and physiology, and we've kind of glossed over this like massively important facet of health, which is energy production. Hey there, welcome back Neurohacker community. I'm Jacqueline, I'm the producer of the Collective Insights podcast, and welcome to episode number 53. Today we've invited Dr. Molly Malouf onto the show for a discussion with our lead product formulator, Dr. Greg Kelly. Molly is a brilliant doctor whose goal is to extend human health span through medical technology, scientific wellness, and educational media. Their conversation today is all about health span, optimizing mitochondrial function, and they also dive into the science behind the formulation of our newest product, Eternus, which was designed to support cell energy for better aging. I want to thank all of you guys for listening. Due to your support, we're climbing up the rankings in iTunes, and we're now number 26 in top shows for the entire category of science and medicine on iTunes. We're so grateful for you being on this journey with us. Remember, we release an episode every two weeks, so be sure to stay tuned for our next episode with Amy Shank Morrison on the connection between the mind and exercise. As a thank you, we're giving our podcast listeners 15% off their first order of any of our products, including our featured product in this episode, Eternus. Visit neurohacker.com and use the code PODCAST53, again that's PODCAST53, to claim that discount. Now, without further ado, let's jump into the show. Here's Molly and Greg. Welcome to Collective Insights. I'm Dr. Greg Kelly, the lead formulator here at Neurohacker Collective, and joining us today is Dr. Molly Malouf. Molly's a really brilliant doctor and an innovator. She's co-founder of NutriSense, and on a mission to radically extend health span and maximize human potential using scientific wellness, health technology, educational media, and health optimization medicine. She's worked in Silicon Valley with a number of high-tech companies innovating the biotech space as an advisor and consultant in areas of nutrigenomics, continuous glucose monitoring, other forms of quantified self, biodata, and personalized medicine. She's been on our podcast before with Daniel Smartenberger discussing personalized medicine, health technology, and blood sugar. 
Today, we've invited her back to have a discussion about healthy aging and our newest product here at Neurohacker Collective, Eternus. Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, this is going to be great. So um, for our audience, um, Eternus is going to be ultimately what we want to speak about, but really what Molly and I pre-talked about was that we really uh, are passionate about mitochondrial performance and wanted to start off our conversation giving the pic big picture about why our mitochondria is such an important part of healthy aging. So I'm going to turn it over to you and let you lead in with that. Sure. Well, when we study aging and when we look at these, these nine hallmarks of aging, um, in the past most uh, people who are interested in longevity really thought that all nine hallmarks were equally contributing to aging. But as it turns out, it's looking more and more like mitochondrial dysfunction precedes almost all of them. It's, it looks like it's upstream to these hallmarks of aging. And the way that I describe um, the importance of mitochondria is thinking about, thinking about a house that had, think about a house. Imagine if you cut its power, what would happen to that house over time? The house would fall apart right? Things just wouldn't work. The, all of the appliances would stop working. The air conditioning wouldn't work. Before you know it, it would, it would be broken down, right? So the, your, your body's kind of similar like that. If your body loses its power supply, and you, you, you basically die, right? Like if, you're, like if you take cyanide, it immediately turns off mitochondrial function and you're dead. That's why mitochondria are so important. So when we think about mitochondria and aging, we have to think about um, what happens when we age. And a lot of people don't realize this, but as we get older, we lose mitochondrial, stru mitochondrial structure and function. Um, and one of the biggest problems and plagues to society today are the fact that we're overtaxing our mitochondria. We're overeating, and we're eating all day long, and we're never giving our metabolism a rest. So we're essentially running our cars 24-7, seven days a week. Uh, maybe getting like a, a small time off, a small fast overnight. But um, really, realistically, most people just are, are overtaxing their metabolism and their mitochondria break down, wear down. And before you know it, you've developed chronic lifestyle-related diseases. So um, the work that I really turn to when I think about mitochondrial health and aging is this work by this physician, uh, Picard, out of Columbia. And he's really uh, tried to ex explain that essentially overeating, inactivity, and too much stress are essentially the three main drivers of disease that damage mitochondrial function. And as we lose mitochondrial function, we lose capacity because mitochondria are not only power plants, but they're capacitors. They make and they store charge. They're essentially the batteries of our cells. And if we don't regularly rege regenerate these batteries by doing things like ketosis or fasting or high-intensity interval training, um, essentially... What we're, what we're doing is recycling these batteries. If we don't do that, we end up um, having poor quality batteries and insufficient numbers of them. Well, I think um, you just covered a lot. And I'm, I want to make sure we backtrack and, and um, sure. I guess go into just like a, a few areas more quickly. So one, um, you mentioned the hallmarks of aging. So um, there's nine of these, as Molly said, and mitochondrial dysfunction is one. And as she mentioned, it's thought to be upstream, meaning it might be the most important of the nine to address. So, um, and really by hallmarks of aging, we mean these are the characteristic things that go wrong as cells get older and cause our right. tissues to break down. Um, one of the other things that Molly mentioned was um, this researcher at Columbia Picard, who um, 
brilliant, brilliant person. And, and his work, at least a large part of it, I would say um, interfaces the, our mitochondria with what we might think of as mind-body medicine and our stress exactly. response. So do you want to give our audience a little bit more insight into some of his, I guess, what, yes. what their findings have been? So I grew up studying, you know, in, in basic biology, when you're a kid, you learn, oh, there's mitochondria in a cell and they're the power plants, right? Everybody knows that. But what I didn't realize and that I felt so, I couldn't believe that I didn't even realize this when I started studying, I started studying mitochondria again over the last year is that they're, they're signal transducing organelles. So they're not just providing us energy, but they're actually reacting to the environment around us and sensing our environment and actually integrating those signals and sending, sending messages to the nucleus and telling it what to do. And one of the things that it integrates is the stress response. So believe it or not, mitochondria are the site of cortisol production in the adrenals. They're also the site of the enzymes that create catecholamines. So they're hugely important for the stress response. They're literally stress integration organelles. So if you think about this, there, you know, we, it, we basically absorbed mitochondria in the endosymbiotic hypothesis many, many thousands of millions of years ago. Um, and in that, um, in that we basically were able to expand our ability to sense and find energy in our environment. And in that process, we developed this symbiotic relationship and then they became organelles. So the fascinating thing about mitochondria is that they kind of, they kind of aided in our evolution and they're constantly aiding in our ability to adapt to stress, to um, essentially survival, and even to sex hormone production. So to me, they're so much more than just power plants. They are vital to our ability to survive and reproduce, which is fundamentally why we're here, essentially. It's, what our, it's what, really what our biology wants us to do, whether we like it or not. Well, I, I know the, that piece that our mitochondria actually make, glucocorticoids and other um, steroid molecules, I must have missed that day in biochemistry and physiology because yeah. I have no recollection of ever hearing that until reading Picard's work. And so, yeah. so super fascinating because, you know, as um, holistic practitioners, we know stress ends up being a big area of focus and mm -hmm. that our mitochondria are really at the crossroads of right. um, building our resiliency and then communicating throughout our system in terms of how yeah. we respond to it. Doug Wallace, who was one of really, I think it's who Picard studied under, but he had this um, seminal paper, I think around 2005, mm. where he introduced this idea that our mitochondria might be the nearest equivalent to this TCM or traditional Chinese medicine idea of qi. And um, right. like I almost think of in, in Star Wars, the metachloridians are you know, what gave them more uh, force ability. That our mitochondria, totally. in a sense, that's what they deliver to us when they're functioning at full power. So I just wanted to see if you had anything yeah. you wanted to share about that. Yeah. I mean, if you think about somebody who's really healthy, um, they kind of glow, right? And the reason why people glow when they're healthy is because they have robust energy production in their body. And they have adequate, even beyond adequate, they have, they have enough energy and more to handle anything that happens in their life. But in scientific terms, in Western terms, this is actually called skin autofluorescence. And skin autofluorescence is essentially your body's ability to fluoresce, like your, your body creates light. And essentially, when we create these electrochemical gradients and we consume food and we make charge, we're literally charging our batteries of our body. And when you, to me, when I look at somebody, I can tell if somebody's healthy by literally just the way they look. Are they making and storing enough charge? Is that showing in their skin? If you look at somebody who's unhealthy, their skin is sallow. They don't produce that amount of light. And they often, I mean, most people in Western culture, the biggest complaint you see in medicine is I'm tired. I don't have enough energy. 
Um, and in Eastern medicine, this has always been sort of their, their fundamental purpose of Chinese medicine is how do you balance an individual's energy? How do you balance the yin and the yang? But we haven't really until very recently integrated this concept. Um, and it wasn't until really Wallace and, and this discovery of the and unbelievable importance of mitochondria in metabolic health that I think we've been starting to piece together this connection. And from what I've gathered, Wallace is actually doing research in China, specifically dedicated to figuring out how to how to bridge these these two things, um, these two worlds. And um, I think it's just fascinating, though, that we've been we've been so obsessed with an anatomy and physiology, and we've kind of glossed over this like massively important facet of health, which is energy production. Oh, for sure. And um, I know one of the things here at Neurohacker Collective that we're always super excited about is things that have to do with complex system science. So, like yeah. the analogy I'll give to our listeners is, if you think of a an ant or a bee on their own, they're not particularly great at solving real world problems. But if you put a colony of ants together, good luck getting that out of your yard, right? And so yeah. in complexity science, you often hear that as a superorganism. So it's mm -hmm. the organism, all of the ants, the colony that's intelligent and that is adapting to do real world um, challenges. And our mitochondria, we're often, you know, when we see a picture of a cell in a textbook, you'll maybe see one, a couple of mitochondria in a cell. But the truth is there's hundreds to thousands inside right. our cells. So it's a, within any given cell, it's this complex network that's always reshaping itself to adapt yes. to the real world. And then you know, there's some thought that they're somehow communicating between the ones in other cells remotely. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, mitochondria in our gut might be doing things to communicate with the mitochondria in our brain. So they're this just amazingly cool thing, and it's great yeah. that they're getting attention. So I'll throw it back to you for a moment. Sure. I mean, I, I have a friend uh, named Ben Gibson who's actually an investor, and he ended up um, doing a really, really big deep dive into mitochondrial research because he was looking to invest in the space. And I ended up basically forcing him to teach me everything he knew. <laughs> I literally showed up at his door one day. And I said, Ben, uh, you know, we, had, we were supposed to hang out, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, I totally forgot. Ended up being like a three-hour session where he just like taught me everything he knew about mitochondria. And one of the most unbelievable things that I discovered was that we've been so obsessed with this idea of the microbiome. But really what I think is fascinating is this idea of the holobiome, which is that we have our DNA, we have mitochondrial DNA, we have microbiome DNA. And then there's also like the microbiome DNA. We are just this massive complex system of organisms, Right. And it's so fascinating that like everybody, you know, people, people get excited about the microbiome and they're like, oh yeah, this is the next frontier. But really the next frontier is complex system science, right? It's actually figuring out how do we make sense of something that's actually fairly immeasurable. Like we don't have good measurement tools for mitochondria, but we know that it's like fundamental to health. Like turns out VO2 max might be one of the best tests for your mitochondrial health. But every time I ask people who are experts in mitochondria, the same thing that they keep on saying to me is, Molly, don't worry so much about measuring it. Ask a person how they feel. And I was like, well, look, how a person feels is actually very, very, very dependent on a bunch of different things. But if you actually think about it as a very simple question, like, do you have enough energy to maintain your daily function, to do all the things that you want to do, to do all the things and more? And if you do have enough energy to do all those things, then you probably have robust mitochondrial health. But if you don't have that, that level of, of sort of vital force, then there might be some, there might be something wrong. Um, and so the way that I, I think about this is also like, 
are you doing things on your daily basis and your daily life that are essentially optimizing for mitochondrial biogenesis and mitophagy, right? And so these are kind of big terms that are actually fairly simple if you break them down. So I'm going to get into really quickly just to try to summarize them for people. Mitochondrial biogenesis is, are you making mitochondria? Are you building more batteries? And mitochondrial mitophagy is kind of like autophagy, but it's a mitochondria. So are you actually throwing out the bad mitochondria that no longer store charge? So how do you do this, right? Like how do you do mitochondrial biogenesis? It's essentially like, it's like, um, it's kind of like a cycle essentially. And what blew my mind is that, okay, we've got, we've, we've seen people, you know, getting excited about, um, you know, exercise and getting excited about fasting and, and integrating these into their lives because we know turns out that all the animal research suggests that these are pretty much like, you know, the most statistically significant things that you can do to enhance your longevity, at least in animal studies. We know this. So then I got into this really for my Stanford course I was teaching on health span. And I started figuring out like, okay, let's get specific. Cause everyone knows you're supposed to, um, you know, do a little bit of fasting, but everybody knows you're supposed to exercise. But like, what does that even mean in terms of practical terms? And essentially what we're, what, what I think is the future of this sort of approach to essentially this complex system is trying to integrate, um, different behaviors as metabolic, um, conditioning. And so just like you would cross train your, your fitness and try different things to optimize different fitness parameters, like doing a little bit of high intensity interval training, doing a little bit of yoga to enhance flexibility, doing some weightlifting to enhance strength. Um, and then, you know, going on a few, you know, going, making sure you, you do adequate walking to make, to make sure that you just have that baseline, um, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. But with metabolism, you can do the same thing with different types of fasting. But the way that we need to integrate this is by looking at a person's stress levels. Because if you take a person who is highly stressed and low capacity and you add these metabolic conditioning um, agents to their body, like fasting and, and fitness, you can actually overload them. And a mm -hmm. perfect example of this is somebody who has chronic fatigue. If you give a person with chronic fatigue syndrome too much exercise, they literally tank. The reason why is they don't have enough capacity. They don't have enough capacitors. They don't have enough batteries to maintain that stress load. So the way that I see the future of health is like, how are we going to personalize the dose of these metabolic conditioning agents, whether it's supplements, whether it's fasting and whether it's fitness and different, different dietary styles to give a person the ability to optimize these cycles, mitochondrial biogenesis and mitophagy. That's great. I, I want to um, unpack a couple of different things for sure. our audience. So, um, so a few terms. So what, um, I think of is basically mitochondrial quality control. That would be the, the big category of things, which sounds exactly. like a lot, but um, a couple of things that Molly mentioned fit under that. So uh, mitochondrial biogenesis would be the creation of new mitochondria, would be in a simple sense. So what I think of that as is um, a, a equivalent to lifting weights. If you lift weights, your muscles will get bigger and stronger. Mitochondrial biogenesis is a bit like that for a mitochondria. They're essentially becoming a bigger, stronger network. And that it's might, happening yeah. as you lift weights. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. exercise is absolutely one of the best things for them. And then mitophagy or anything with autophagy is, is basically a cleaning function. So it's getting rid of the damaged things, usually proteins. And so mm -hmm. the um, Intermittent fasting is one of the big things to stimulate autophagy. So we have these two things, like building a new, stronger network, but also cleaning up the broken bits of the old one so they can be reassembled as you put together these new, bigger, robust ones. And, and some of that's a circadian function, if I'm mm -hmm. um, 
followed the literature correctly. And that's part of the reason why, why naturalistic things. So um, we had Dr. Cruz on not too long ago, and I think his one recommendation how to improve your mitochondrial function was get out and see the sunrise. Now, maybe that's not doable for everyone, but um, in addition to exercise and some type of fasting types of behaviors, exposure to nature is hugely important for our mitochondria. So totally. Yeah. I mean, I think we forget the importance of light in our life <laughs> turns out <laughs> because we spend so much time indoors, but I, I personally experienced a massive improvement in my health from moving from a dim apartment to a bright apartment. It was astonishing at how much, uh, how much more energy I just got from moving to an apartment that enabled me to wake up with light every day. And I'm talking, I went from like apartment with like, with like a light well to an apartment with only big giant windows. And it was amazing because I just felt my circadian rhythms kind of snap into shape. And the weirdest thing that happened is that my menstrual cycle began to um, be in sync with the moon. And so it literally changed, my cycle changed to like literally become like in sync with, with nature. And I think, you know, it sounds hippie, but actually we're really designed to be more aligned with the natural cycles of life in our environment. And we're so detached from our natural world that I think, um, I actually have to prescribe this to patients. Like I, I, I have a client with chronic fatigue and I said to him, how much time do you spend in, around trees? And he's like, pretty much, uh, none. And I was like, well, every weekend I'm going to need you to go into nature for two hours minimum. And I actually prescribe this to, to patients because it's so important that people make, you know, make contact with the earth and ground their bodies. And this connection as our, as sort of our body battery, like it seems like we're actually meant to ground our energy in the earth. And we're actually meant to get energy, not only from food, but from light. And I, I think this is, um, pretty new and exciting science, but it looks like there is some research that's fairly, I don't know if you've read this, but it's fairly obscure, but there is this one paper that's floating around PubMed that essentially describes that if you consume a high chlorophyll diet, you might be able to actually capture more light independent of food intake through your mitochondria, through your skin, which is like mind boggling. I'm sure the spirulina and chlorella people out there in yeah, the world exactly. would love that. So, yeah. um, <laughs> but I, I think, um, I'm a naturopathic doctor. I don't know that I mentioned that in our lead-in, yep. but um, that evolved out of, um, in part, European nature cure. And so back uh, yeah. 100 plus years ago, the naturopaths back then used air, water, light, food, movement. Mm -hmm. Those were, that was their core toolkit. And um, you know, the mitochondria are, in a way, starting to give us a, a, an explanation for why some of those um, what aren't, you know, super sexy tools necessarily can make such profound differences. Um, totally. One thing I did also want to touch on, you had mentioned fatigue, but um, there's a couple yeah. of things I want to make sure our audience understands about mitochondria and, and essentially healthy aging. But um, I know in general, the thought among some people is that each decade we tend to lose more and more mitochondrial function and that maybe as much as 80% of all what we think of as diseases of aging might be related to subpar mitochondrial performance. So yeah. because of that, a lot of the, what I think of as the signs and symptoms of getting old or um, um, less healthy tend yeah. to also correspond to that. So things like fatigue, super mm -hmm. important, but sleep issues. So mm -hmm. you know, that could be a problem because, uh, and this is something I didn't realize until fairly recently doing some work on a, a sleep formulation. There's a yeah. big ATP surge in our brain just as we kick into sleep. 
So yep. ATP is the core molecule that the mitochondria make. And one thing that Molly's mentioned a few times, but that Eternus was generated or created really to facilitate is this idea that our mitochondrial make this chemical compound that's super important to allow cells to do work. And if we don't have enough of this, we just can't get to all the important jobs cells need to do. And when that happens, that shows up in our life with these low-level things that medicine has a hard time dealing with, fatigue, sleep mm -hmm. issues, um, you know, trouble even being motivated to do things. So what I would think of as mood problems. So yeah. it, our mitochondria, like another thing, mitochondrial dysfunction Swallowing would be one of the things you would see like on the, the questionnaires for that, like these mm -hmm. things that we don't have solutions for. But in essence, it means somewhere in our body, there's not enough energy to get a job done. And exactly. so with mitochondria, the focus is if we if we do more for them, they can do more for us. And that translates yep. into often improving across the board these symptoms that we didn't have solutions for. Yeah. I mean, what I find really fascinating is, you know, all I need to do is just not exercise for a few days and I see my energy levels drop. And what people don't realize is that there's essentially this concept of the adaptive capacity model, which is that your body needs signals sent to it to promote mitochondrial uh, biogenesis. And one of those signals is movement and exercise, whether it be, you know, um, endurance exercise or uh, lifting or um, high intensity interval training. Point is, is that those are signals sent to your body to say, I need to increase the capacity to do this work. And that means that your body is going to upregulate mitochondrial function every time you do an exercise, right? Like this is the point of it is that you actually are sending the signal to like produce more capacitors, right? Capacity and batteries. So when you don't exercise, your body sends, it gets the send, signal sent that oh, well, I don't have any need for these. So I'm going to produce less mitochondria because I don't have a demand. Why, do, why, why would I spend energy making things that I need uh, if I don't have any need for them, right? Like that to me, is, that blew my mind. And that actually got me exercising more regularly. Um, but one of the problems is that a lot of people suffer from such profound fatigue that, and actually I talked with Daniel Schmackenberger about this a long time ago. And this is actually part of the reason why supplements are important in medicine is that some people really do suffer from such profound fatigue that even just walking to the mailbox is too much for them. And we have to get them to a point where they can actually have even enough capacity to get started on exercise. And so one of the things that I like to, to use supplements for is actually just getting this process started. Um, and I think, honestly, frankly, the Eternus product, like product is a pretty, pretty profoundly intellectual approach to and like mitochondrial um, quality control. I mean, if you actually look at the, all, all of the ingredients and the, and the explanation of why you guys have chosen these ingredients, um, it makes a lot of sense. And, and when you think about um, those people who are really, really struggling with energy and, and they just don't have enough to get on that treadmill, um, I think starting with a supplement can sometimes be a good boost and just getting them to sit outside, you know? Yeah, I would, I would say, um, I agree that like I'm a big fan of starting low and kind of pushing the bar up from below instead of yes. overestimating what we think we can do. It's one of the things right. I, I always feel bad for people that go to an athletic trainer and they put them through a grueling workout right out of the gate. Totally. It wouldn't be how I would approach it. No. And maybe that's just because I, I know from when I saw patients and you, I'm sure the same is when you overdo it with a patient, 
then you've taken many steps back. It's much better to kind of um, work slowly and incrementally build health and fitness. Exactly. Um, and then one of the things you mentioned with supplements, there's, um, so we've mentioned a few times exercise and then um, calorie restriction types of behaviors. So with certain supplements, they, they would be considered either exercise mimetics or calorie restriction mimetics. And by All that, right. what I mean is if you take this substance, it gives you some aspect of the same um, physiological response. So your cells in mitochondria are responding somewhat the same way they would be if you had done the calorie restriction or the exercise. So when yeah. we developed Eternus, that was one of the key things we looked for. What were, were some of these things that could duplicate or, I guess, mildly stress your physiologies in ways that would be similar to exercise and calorie right. restriction and then allow your system to essentially toughen up, but in a, mm -hmm. a less aggressive way than going out and you know doing a spinning class? Sure. I mean, like a great example of this is, is just like, weirdly enough, apple cider vinegar actually activates AMPK. Uh, it's not a supplement. I mean, it's a, it's a substance you can consume, but curcumin as well and fiber, all of these things actually activate AMPK. But what else does this exercise? Um, you know, and, and I think, um, as far as I can tell, I think berberine actually downregulates IGF-1, that pathway. So it's kind of similar. I mean, it's part of the reason why it helps with glucose metabolism. But maybe you could tell me a little bit more about some of the exercise or calorie um, restriction mimetics that are in Eternus, because I think that'd be really interesting to learn more about. Sure. Um, before I touch on that, I just wanted to talk about AMPK or AMPK. Sure. So, yeah. Um, AMPK, MK is a, um, what I think of as a master regulator, and its main job is it senses ATP levels. So if, if we're exercising, we're going to deplete ATP because we're using it to move our muscles. And so it, that responds by boosting ATP production. So essentially taking the air we're breathing, the food we may have um, eaten and stored as glycogen or fats in our our tissues and converting it into energy. But the other right. big things that AMK does is it, um, boost these other things like mitochondrial biogenesis so that in the future, when we exercise next, whether that's tomorrow or next week, we'll be able to have more capacity, which is something that you mentioned. So AMPK is um, the master sensor for really ATP upregulation. And what you see for a lot of these like super important cell signaling pathways is they're causing adaptations. And one of the complexity science understandings is our system or complex adaptive systems are great at learning and figuring out um, essentially a prediction for the future. So when we lift weights, our muscles get bigger and stronger, not so much because we lifted weights now, but in case we lift them again. Yeah. Right? And yeah. so, so um, AMPK, there's lots of things that stimulate that. Things like creatine, which bodybuilders and athletes have been using for quite a while. Creatine's a, a um, really a first line defense. If we're acutely depleting ATP because of uh, like saying doing a hundred yard sprint, our body uses creatine to replenish that quickly. But yeah. creatine then also boosts AMK so that the next time we sprint, we'll have more too. There's other things like lipoic acid, um, which is a, uh, I think of as a mitochondrial nutrient, but that would also be an AMK booster. And then lots of phytochemicals do right. it. So. Um, right. Whereas veritrol tends to hit a lot of um, a lot of pathways, sirtuin pathway, yeah. yeah, 
and that's a, a great one for AMPK up regulation. But um, so resveratrol for our audience that may not know is was originally found in grapes. And what you find with a lot of these plant chemicals is they tend to um, be the stress response mechanism of plants. So right. if a grape is stressed by its, you know, the climate's dry, there's lots mm -hmm. of sun, um, there's pests nearby, it'll make more resveratrol. Yep. And when we consume that resveratrol, it acts as a mild stress on us. Essentially, um, some people think that it, it allows us to forecast, oh, like the future might be a little tougher than we expected. We better toughen up to be prepared. Oh, I love that. You know, it's funny because like I've actually read papers on xenohormesis, but you really phrased it beautifully there with that because that actually really feeds back into this whole um, adaptive complex science concept is like really we're meant to interact with our environment. We're, we're meant to actually eat foods that are grown in wild environments because those send us the signals of like, what the environment looks like, right? So that makes perfect sense. That's brilliant. Yeah, so that, that what you find as you start to dig into the research on mitochondria is that it's plant compounds, especially like yeah. these polyphenols that come up over and over. So when we totally. develop deterrence, one of the things um, that this would be a truism, just like the average American diet's fairly poor in fruits and vegetables, but also a variety of fruits and vegetables, polyphenols, our ancestors would have got a lot more because they were eating things that were wild, that were raised in tougher environments where, you know, yeah. our plant foods aren't necessarily. So um, no. there would be a generally, I think you could say there's a huge deficiency in the U.S. diet of both the amount and um, variety of polyphenols. So when you look at Eternus, that's one thing that if, if you knew what, you know, all the polyphenols, you know, like the resveratrol, we use a a strawberry seed extract that has an ingredient called tillerocide in it. Cool. Um, you know, rosemary has some polyphenols. We have a, a branded product called Elev ATP that's actually been studied to boost ATP, but part of that product is trace minerals, and the other part is apple polyphenols. So polyphenols, just super, super important and good for us for boosting mitochondrial performance. Yeah. I think the trace minerals piece is actually fascinating as well, and I've been getting more and more into why are minerals so important and why are we so mineral depleted? And a lot of it's because our water no, is no longer mineralized. We um, don't get water from springs. <laughs> we get water from, you know, cities. And it, it's astonishing when you, I think one of the reasons why people have kind of gotten obsessed with these mineral waters like Topo Chico and Gerald Steiner is that there's mineralized, right? And I, I don't know if you've gotten it all into um, the Quinton world of like, you know, the, the sea mineral extracts and whatnot, but it does look like um, a lot of modern life makes us more mineral depleted, whether it be because of stress, whether it be because of the poor water supplies we're consuming, whether it be because people are just eating a standard American diet that doesn't have a lot of minerals in it. I think we need to think about um, nutrition in terms of what's missing and why. And I think it's... Um, really cool that you guys considered that. And I, I've never even heard of that supplement before. So I, that ingredient is so new to me. And I think that's what I love about, um, frankly, and I, and I'm actually, I'm not paid by the company Neurohacker. I'm not a spokesperson yet, but <laughs> I definitely love that you guys have, you guys really go deep into the research when you're designing these formulas. Um, and it's, it's really rare to see. I think, um, to have so many ingredients in one one stack is fascinating. And the fact that you guys have such deep reasoning behind each ingredient is really cool. And just out of personal experience, like today I woke up, and this is kind of an interesting day. 
I woke up um, with all this motivation initially to like, uh, well, I, I woke up last, last, last night I went to bed and I, and I told myself, all right, I'm going to wake up in the morning. I'm going to do high intensity interval training, sauna and like a uh, cold shower. But I ended up having calls and I got really busy and I had way too much to do. And, and honestly, I didn't have time to do it all. And I also just kind of weirdly enough, woke up today with not, not feeling as much energy as I usually have. And I said, okay, I'm going to be on this podcast. I'm going to be taking this supplement because I'm going to be talking about a supplement today. I might as well try it. And, um, I read about the supplement and it looked like some people respond immediately. Some people respond over time. Some people don't respond at all, but I was actually pretty surprised at how quickly, like within a couple of hours of taking it, I noticed my motivation return. I noticed my energy levels went up. I mean, and, and this was like, kind of, um, it was kind of quick and I'm, I'm definitely susceptible to, to the placebo response because I have the genetics for that. However, um, it was a pretty, it was a pretty quick response and I wasn't expecting that because, um, I, you don't always feel that with, with a supplement. So I'm curious to know a little bit more about your, your thoughts on what people should expect when they take this. Um, I know you've got some numbers on who responds to it, who may not respond to it. Um, curious to know your thoughts on, on that. Sure. Um, Quickly before we get to that, do you, were you are you a more keto or any special diet um, right now? I so it's interesting. I actually ate a fairly high carb meal last night, and I'm pretty low carb almost all the time. But I had a friend come over and wanted to, and she's a, she's a vegan, so I decided to make a higher carb meal for her um, because vegan diets are generally higher carb. And I, that might have actually been part of the reason why I woke up today. I'm feeling a little bit off because I usually eat pretty low carb, and it was a fairly higher carb meal last night. Okay, well, I know we've seen, um, so we at Neurohacker, we think of um, response grouping. So when we formulate and then test a product, we're looking yeah. for, and, and, and I would view this the same with something like exercise. There's going to be yeah. always a subset of people that are super responders. So back when I was in the Navy, my lifting buddy at the time, for six months when we were deployed, we pretty much did the same workout. He put on like 20 pounds of muscle. I maybe put on two, right? It was wow. so like, you know, frustrating, right? So he was yeah. a super responder. You could say I was a responder. I didn't get a bad response. I just didn't get, you know, yeah. you know anything near him. So there's always that super responder group. There's a responder group. There's a group that it doesn't work for, right? The most things you'll find some subset of people that were non-responders. And then even with exercise, someone could get hurt, right? You could get some negative responders. So when we formulate and test a product, we're looking always at those. And our goal is to have about a third to 40% super responders, about 40% responders. And mm -hmm. then we typically feel like it's super hard to get anything that's going to have more than that four out of five people that get yeah. a, a good response. So because yeah. of that, we offer a money back guarantee because we know there's going to always be some small sliver that a product just doesn't work for. You know, that's, that's the truth. It's like, I actually tried Qualia and it did not work for me. And I definitely noticed the caffeine uh, effect, but it really wasn't the right supplement for me. And that's okay. I think that's the, that's the fascinating thing about personalized nutrition is that we're just beginning to truly be able to prescribe people the right stacks. And, and it's kind of a, in the very beginning, it can be a little trial and error. Um, I think I, I generally like do like to test before I treat. Um, but the thing about mitochondria is you can't actually test, like you can't measure these things that are constantly changing, which most people don't realize is that Mitochondria, um, this network, it's not like this static organelle. 
it's, they're literally constantly coming together and then they're breaking apart. And the, the way that they come together is when we fast, actually, they come together when they're under stress and fasting is a stress. And when they come together, they communicate and they all start vibrating and resonating. And then the ones that are not carrying the right charge get thrown out. They get tagged with this um, thing called Parkin and they get, they get um, internalized by lysosomes and they get thrown out. Um, that's mytophagy, right? So, um, and then they, and then when they, when we eat, they come apart, they, it's called fission. So it's fusion and fission, right? But we don't actually have a good measurement for this right now. So essentially the best measurement you've got for this, I think this, this supplement is how do you feel? And maybe you're going to be an early responder or maybe after a month, that's when you're going to start feeling a difference. But I think the fact that you guys have a money back guarantee and, and, you know, there's really no reason not to try it if you have energy issues. Like, I think it's, um, I think we're just starting to see this whole mitochondrial supplementation world emerge. And I went to paleo effects and I was astonished at like the fact that people are picking up on this movement. Like this is not just us. This is like actually getting to be like a global awareness. And a few years ago, it was like, everything was about the microbiome and everything was about inflammation. But now I think things are moving towards everything's about mitochondria. And a lot of these things that we're worried about are actually downstream. Um, there's actually a bunch of research that claims that even inflammation is downstream to mitochondrial dysfunction. So um, there's a lot we still have to figure out, but I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity of like even biophysicists to attack this problem. Because if somebody can figure out how to measure mitochondria, they should win the Nobel prize. And, and arguably was it Wallace who, inve- who, who discovered mitochondrial DNA? Yes. I think yep. it was. Yeah. Um, so he, he should know. have won. I don't yeah. know if he discovered it or discovered it was inherited from yeah our, the, the our, maternal our, yeah right but like th- he should have won a Nobel Prize like this is easily one of the most important discoveries in science and the guy who, who the guy who actually discovered autophagy in Japan he won the Nobel Prize so like this is becoming um, globally a very fascinating interest and I think what people um, what, what really, there's actually, a, we should link to this video that Wallace has on YouTube that uh, my friend Ben told me about, but essentially like, if you really look at all these chronic lifestyle related diseases, you see them cluster in people. They don't just get one, they get a few. And to me, it's, it's kind of like the house breaking down. It's like, if your, if your power supply is cut, then your air conditioning breaks and your lights don't work. And, and, you know, to me, it's, it's, if we can just generate more and better mitochondria over time and throw out the garbage of our cells um, and do these behaviors and have these lifestyles that contribute to this um, this function, then we should see ourselves live longer and healthier lives. Absolutely agree. And um, I, I think um, at least what I'm seeing is something similar to you. It's getting a lot more attention. Um, I think NAD as an example. Oh, yeah. I think in general things um, in the health span space, so senolytics would be a big thing. And for our audience, these are things we have what are often referred to as zombie cells. So they're cells that um, were damaged enough that we, they got essentially frozen. They weren't eliminated, but they're not healthy cells, and they can send out inflammatory molecules. So senolytics would be things that destroy those cells, super important for healthy aging. But then things that um, the mitochondrial piece, so NAD, so um NAD we haven't really touched on, but NAD is used to make ATP. So if we don't have enough NAD plus specifically, we can't make that. NAD plus is also used to activate sirtuins, one of the um, anti-aging pathways. And sirtuins activate AMPK, which we spoke about. And then AMPK feeds back to allow us to make more NAD plus. It kind of goes in this big virtuous circle. Um, right. So NAD does what I think of as three jobs, and they would be making 
ourselves able to make more ATP, uh, yeah. upregulating these longevity pathways. And then they also um, do a lot with cellular defenses, so detoxification, antioxidant defenses. And so they yeah. sit at a crossroads. But then one of the things I didn't realize until kind of digging into NAD is that there's three different ways that our cells make NAD. They can make it from tryptophan, which is amino acid. They can make it from the flushing niacin and from non-flushing niacins. But each okay. of those pathways, we need ATP to make NAD. And so there you go. Like th these things are all interconnected. So at Neurohacker Collective, when we were creating Eternus, we wanted to boost NAD, but doing that without also paying attention to ATP just seemed like we were missing half of the the equation. So yeah. one of the things that we would tell people is that if you are doing NAD boosting stuff, absolutely great, but pay attention to doing things that support your mitochondria more directly as well. So at a right. minimum, eat more polyphenol rich foods. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I found interesting in the um, Eternus research was that you know, you guys really made a strong stance that you just weren't going to include um, nicotinamide ribose or nicotinamide mononucleotide in your supplementation because a lot of the new research seems to suggest that these are broken down before they actually get into our cells. And so I think that's a pretty, um, I think it's a very current stance on this. Um, and yet I still find that people including myself, like have, have, um, in the past supplemented with this because for, for the, for the ideal goal of regenerating, um, or providing a, a, a source of NAD. Um, so I think it's, I think it's pretty forward thinking and, and maybe you could touch a little bit upon how you guys approach NAD in terms of your, the, the, the goals that you have to, to, to produce this. So you're not, you're not put, you're not including these substances because your belief is that they get broken down, but um, you boost NAD through like what, what mechanisms? Cause I'm a little, it's still a little fuzzy for me. Yeah. So there's, there's three pathways that we make NAD. So they're called the de novo. So that means from scratch. So we can take the amino acid tryptophan and through a series of about 11, um, steps, we can make NAD. So usually okay. the ratio is, and this is just a ballpark about 60 to one. So 60 parts tryptophan, one part NAD comes out at the end because tryptophan okay. also is made into lots of other things. Right. Um, another way is called the price handler pathway. So that's um, niacin, the flushing vitamin right. D3 that's right. made from that. And then the third is called the salvage pathway. And the salvage pathway is super cool. So one of the things that um, I've seen documented a few different times is there's this idea that we essentially make and use about our body weight of ATP a day. Cool. So like a huge amount, That's right? Crazy. Cause, cause <laughs> this is just getting constantly churned. So NAD isn't quite that much, but we're, we're using, um, and remaking lots of NAD every day. So we can yeah. make the core molecule from those two pathways and also from another, the, not the salvage pathway. So the salvage pathway, there's three niacins that can make it. And so that's where the NR comes in, the NMN, or the okay. niacinamide. They all are okay. salvage pathway intermediates. Just gotcha. entering, it's, it's a big loop. They all enter yeah. different places in the loop. Yeah. Um, and the cool thing about the salvage pathway is the salvage pathway is what gets activated as soon as you use NAD plus to activate sirtuins. So sirtuins for our audience, that's a, another pro-longevity signaling pathway. Right. And to activate them, they literally consume NAD plus molecule and spit out niacinamide at the other side. So 
Oh, that's cool. So that niacinamide is then salvaged and turned back into NAD plus in two steps with the middle step being NMN, right? And where AM gotcha. AMPK comes in, the rate limiting enzyme, and for our audience, that means the slow spot in the loop is a, an enzyme called um, NAMPT. And upregulating that is the key thing. So what I would say, whether using NR, NMN, the older niacins, all those things are super important for building it once, but we don't just build that once, we're using it and it's getting salvaged over and over. So from a complexity science perspective, we think the real, I guess, where the real diamonds are is salvaging it, upregulating yeah. that whole pathway so your body can regenerate it as much as it needs over and over. So what you wow. often see with the, like an NR supplement, it will be recommended, you know, take this once, twice, yeah. three times a day, yeah. right? Like you're just pushing, pushing, pushing the, the substrate, but none of the other levers. So like as an that example, cool. when yeah. you can do things that, um, there's another pathway that consumes it besides sirtuins called CD38. That's an inflammation-induced pathway, and it's also one that senescent cells super aggressively upregulate. So there's some research that suggests the reason that NAD levels are low as we age is because of CD38. It's basically consuming more than its fair share, right? Ah, so if we, can, I see. if we can use a lever to dial that back so it's you know more like a, a nice house guest than someone eating all your food, there's more NAD plus available. So believe it or not, in studies, what you often would see is giving these precursors. They'll do mm -hmm. a good job boosting NAD plus level. But if you can slow the activity of some of these aggressive consumers, they boost it even more. Gotcha. Right? And so, so what, remind me what slows the um, consumers down. So that um, CD38, the biggest thing is yeah. the polyphenol apigenin in terms of what's oh. been investigated to date. Oh, cool. This is super interesting because I'm looking at the formulation and I'm seeing tryptophan, I'm seeing niacinamide, niacin, and then I'm seeing the apigenin. And so I, I, I actually think this is really fascinating. And I think for anybody who's been confused about NAD, um, this podcast should really shed some beautiful light on this complex uh, topic because it's just people are, I mean, there are so many people that are coming to me asking me, what should I take for NAD plus? And I'm just like, well, you could do this and you could do this and you could do this, but I like that you have included all of these in your, in your supplement because it's, it's, I mean, if you actually look at all these ingredients, there's a ton, I was taking a lot of these things individually. So the fact that you can take a stack without having to go buy separate bottles is always nice. Like it's really, um, it can be kind of a hassle to, to formulate your, your perfect stack. And you guys seem to have done this pretty well. Well, yeah, we're so far we're, we're, um, and we're very pleased to even read, um, release it in the first place because we do a lot of testing before we would ever yeah. put a product into the wild. But well, I know one of the ingredients, I, I think it's would be more obscure. So we mentioned LFATP, something that's been studied to boost ATP and um, it, it's been athletes specifically they've looked at. But there's a, a plant in there called um, black ginger or black turmeric are the common names. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Um, Never heard of this. Yeah, and so, um, and, and earlier we talked about like if your mitochondria aren't working, different they can show up in a lot of different ways. But um, so grip strength, there's a couple mm -hmm. different what I think of as great functional markers of aging. You mentioned VO2 yep. max earlier, but grip strength is another one. And then gait totally. speed, so how like yep. how quickly someone just happens to walk, and yep. um, 
the black ginger is something that's actually been studied for grip strength and has um, to date just one study, but in humans and it made a, a difference. And so grip strength would be another one of those things where we can't directly measure your mitochondria. Grip strength is a great biomarker to people for people to test as they age. And totally. then, then um, how quickly we just um, walk our, our normal gait speed. So I know um, way before we did a big test of Returnus, I took about two months of the, the formula. And one of the things, and this could be placebo response for sure, sure. I noticed I felt like I was walking quicker. It seemed oh, like it so had like over time put more pep in my step. So, yeah. you know, there's these cool things that no matter, no matter what products you're taking, that you can start measuring for yourself. And we want to get these baselines, you know, um, so that, and you used the word health span, and we use that as well, so that we yeah. can see how how healthy we're aging. So one of the, yeah. I guess, distinctions we use, we all have a birth age, like how, how old we are based on our birthday, or that's called our chronological age. But we also have um, a couple other ages. So one's our, our biological age, it's how age, yeah. aged our cells are. Um, another would be our perceived age, like how old do we feel, or felt age, I think is what it's called. Like, you know, do, do you feel older than your years, younger than your years? Most of us would say we feel younger. And then there's perceived age, which is how old the other people looking at us think we are, right? So we have these oh, yeah. multiple ages. And yeah. for me, like the big win in life is making sure that those other ones are less than my chronological one. Yeah, I actually, I, I really agree with that. I think perceived age is fascinating. I, I love getting into lifts because I always, they always, you know, you get into conversation with people and I kind of, I didn't, I didn't realize it was just called perceived age, but generally I've called it kind of like the lift test. Like what is the lift driver? How old does the lift driver think you think you are? Cause this is a stranger who doesn't know you. And if a lift driver thinks that you're younger than your age, it's a pretty good chance that your perceived age is lower because they don't know who you are and they've only glanced at you. Right. But, um, but VO2 max is a great one. Um, my VO2 max went up from just high intensity interval training. That was like one thing that I added since February of this year. And slowly ramped it up one day a week. I would do 20 minutes at a time, one minute of sprint, one minute of rest. And that, that got me into, into the outstanding range of, um, the max, which was like pretty awesome. I was on, the, I was on the cusp of it before I was like right below and I was annoyed. So I thought I would just try to boost it that way. But, um, walking speed's great. Anytime you look at an elderly person who's walking really slowly through a grocery store, you know, you can tell that walking speed does indicate age. Um, and then, I actually brought a dynamometer, that's what they're called, a grip strength measurement tool to my class at Stanford and had all the students measure their grip strength because um, I wanted to show them firsthand uh, where they lied. And I was sad to to see my grip strength went down as my weightlifting went down from January to like April because I stopped weightlifting in January um, because I was in Japan for February. So like turns out that your grip strength can change fairly quickly over a few months. So I, d- I definitely recommend that if people want to optimize these biomarkers to slowly integrate um, different things into their lifestyle. So one of the simple things that you can do is just gradually increase your steps. I really like the Garmin Vivo Smart, Smart 4 because it, j- it gradually adapts to your step count. And if you don't meet your step goal, it reduces your step, um, your step goal the next day so you can achieve it. And then once you achieve it, it increases it. And so it gets you to slowly up your steps over time. Because if you're not moving, like the, the next, the, the, the thing that people usually get wrong with exercise is they start with a hard workout with a trainer and then they feel like garbage, like you said. And so you've got to get people to sort of sl- like slowly adapt to these changes in their lifestyle. And then, and once you've got your, your steps up, then 
starting to add some formal exercise into your life. And I really like yoga, frankly, because it incorporates a lot more parasympathetic activity than most exercise does. It really gets you to, to calm your nervous system down, which most people frankly need. Um, and, and yoga is just so good for flexibility. And frankly, what people don't realize is that if you fall, when you get older, you can limit your life dramatically. Like an, like a person who's aging and has a fall and breaks a hip is, has a gigantic risk of death within the next four years. It's, I I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's really high. So avoiding the possibility of dying prematurely from something like a fall as you age is really important. And then sarcopenia of aging is super common. Um, and you have to lift weights if you're, otherwise you're just going to lose your muscle mass. It's just part of life. And there's also this thing called anabolic resistance that occurs as we get older, where we actually respond less to the same amount of stimulus as we exercise. So it's actually pretty key to start exercising when you're younger. And for anybody who's in there hitting 30, <laughs> turns out that 30, everything's downhill. So you got to start an exercise regimen by 30. Like if you don't, it's going to be downhill from there because your hormones are starting to shift when you hit 30. Um, but all of this stuff is, is within your control. It's actually within your, your ability to, to do. And, um, and that's what people forget is that you actually have a say in how you age. And I, I believe that largely the best medicine for, for aging is exercise turns out. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. And I usually just think of, um, a portfolio of exercises. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned, um, high interval training. So some type of sprint type thing. So I tend to personally do a lot of, I'll skip rope as fast as I can for about a hundred skips. And there then I'm a big fan of like rest recovery. The, the big piece I missed when I was younger, when my friend gained all that muscle mass and I gained very little. So I was horrible at taking rest and recovery. Yes. And, yes. You know, we forget I, was in, this. I was in the Navy and completely sleep deprived. So that just didn't work. He, he didn't stand midnight watches like I did. So he had that wow. edge going for him. But um, one of the things, and this was a few years back, so weight training is another. And to get benefits as we age, we don't have to do crazy amounts. But one of the things no. I think um, that I, like, I like to point out to people is I saw these, this study probably three years ago. But it um, had, I think, men mid to late 50s. And what they varied was the amount of time between sets. So they had one group. Um, do the next set within about a minute of finishing the last one. And mm-hmm. another group wait three to five minutes. And what they noticed over, it might have been an eight-week study, but over time was that the both groups got stronger, but the group that waited more got bigger and stronger. Wow. And they also measured immediately after, and I believe it was either 48 or 72 hours after growth hormone, testosterone. Now, testosterone becomes a big thing, right? That's a a anabolic thing, and it's made by our, um, I'll let you say it. Mitochondria. You got it. Um, (laughs) What they found is there was a huge difference in the the testosterone response to the same weight training with a much better response if you waited longer between the sets. So my rule of thumb is three minutes minimum. And it took me... Because I, I was like that. one of those 30-second guys, like yeah. thing to thing. And ever yeah. since then, I, I looked. There was other studies that had looked at the same, uh, the same um, um, dynamic. And so I literally keep an app with me. I set three minutes and wait for a countdown. And, um, you know, I, I love I, that. it's made a big difference, <laughs> I think, in my, my um, strength and performance gains. And I'm, I'm hitting my late, late 50s. So it's, you know, I've been, I would say for yeah. sure I put on... Um, mass since starting that routine. So one of the things I would say is it's um, 
complexity science, it's what you do, but timing almost always plays a super important role. And sometimes we can be really well-intentioned, but the timing piece will be just a little bit off and it will prevent us from getting our best results. So right. with that, is there two or three things that you would give as advice to our audience? Two things, that maybe three things that they could be doing to really up their game when it comes to mitochondrial performance? Oh, yeah. So the first thing that people totally underestimate is the role of relationships and health. Your relationships are either helping you build mitochondria or they are destroying your mitochondria. When you, whenever you deal with a really high emotional response, you're draining your batteries. And you only have so much energy to actually commit to your day-to-day -day work and your relationships in your, your life. And so um, really nourishing healthy relationships can dramatically improve your chances of living a long, long, healthy life. Um, relationships take work. They're essentially like anything else in life, like a company or, um, you know, plants you're growing, like they require care and attention. So you can't expect a relationship to flourish unless you actually commit time and effort into it. So that's something that I would actually really recommend is focus on relationship quality and focus on building healthy relationships. If you want to live a long time, the second thing is, um, blood sugar management. If you are constantly spiking your blood sugar, you are literally burning hot and you are making smoke in your cells, essentially. And that smoke is damaging the lining of your blood vessels. And when your blood vessel lining gets damaged, then your LDL, LDL has to come in and patch it up. And so if you want to limit your chances of getting heart disease and cancer, you got to lower your blood sugar levels. Most people have silent insulin resistance and impaired glucose tolerance. And so um, not to plug my own company, but we are using continuous glucose monitoring to actually unveil what's really happening in your body when you eat different food. So limiting overeating and limiting over amount, like too much sugar is actually one of the best things you can do to actually just reduce the burden of, um, damage on your mitochondria as you age. So I would really recommend, um, those two things. And, um, yeah, I think the third thing is just constantly exercise your mind with learning. Um, there's just so much evidence that continuously learning and continuously engaging with the world around you and the people that you have in your environment and, and the environment itself is, is one of the best things you can do to age well and for your brain to age well. So with that, I'll, I'll say goodbye and thank you so much. And if you want to find me online, go to, um, at drmolly.co on, um, Instagram and just email me at mmaloof at, uh, stanford.edu. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Real pleasure. Thanks. Bye, Molly. Thanks for staying through to the end with this conversation with Dr. Molly Malouf. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new to apply to your own life. Remember, our podcast is made possible by Neurohacker Collective, and you can get 15% off your first order at neurohacker.com using the coupon code PODCAST53. If you have any questions about this content, then please leave them on our site at neurohacker.com podcast, and we'll work to get those answered by Molly on a future episode. If you like this episode, then please leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share it with all of your friends who are interested in living longer, healthier lives. Make sure to subscribe to Collective Insights wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.